Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be in beginning in verse 23 today. So Matthew 21, 23. Last week, if you remember in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we really kind of hit a, an important milestone, an important turning point in the story, and that uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem, right? He'd been heading for Jerusalem with his disciples for a long time. He'd been telling them what was going to take place. And then last week we saw he actually came into Jerusalem. And he didn't come in secretly, even though he knew there were religious leaders there who were wanting to harm him, wanting to, to kill him even. He didn't try to come under the, the cover of darkness. He came fulfilling scripture, knowing that, that his father had sent him for this moment, had, had sent him to to seek and save the lost. And so he came in riding on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the, the prophecies in Zechariah, right, and, and, and other Old Testament prophets, uh, declaring that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the king sent from God who'd come to rescue his people and to rule over them in righteousness. And, and that wasn't all he did. Remember, he, all, as soon as he entered Jerusalem, he went uh, into the temple, and he, he cleansed the temple of, of, of the chaos and, and the, the, the greed that were, was taking place there to restore some pure worship for the Lord, but also to, as, as, a, as a symbolic act of judgment against them and, and predicting the fact that uh, God was going to judge the nation of Israel, God was going to even destroy this temple, that God was beginning a new um, chapter in his his uh, story, a new chapter in his um, program of salvation, if you will, that God was creating a new people and that that new people would be that temple, not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, a temple where God's presence dwelt and a temple that, that was set aside to, to display the glory of God and to, to bring praises to God. And we talked about that Um, last week, how we are living stones, right? Each one of us who's in Christ is a living stone built up as part of that temple. Well, that same kind of theme is going to continue today as Jesus is teaching in the temple. So we're still in this Passion Week, right? Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. He's going to be teaching in the temple, but he's going to be confronted by the religious leaders, and, and he's going to Uh, speak words directly to them in the form of two parables that we want to consider today. All right, so let's uh, read our text. If you would please stand in honor of God's word, I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. I want to start you with a couple of questions today. They're a little confrontational, but um, nonetheless, I feel compelled to, to start this way. Are you ignoring Jesus? Are you ignoring Jesus? Or have you even dismissed Jesus altogether? And our passage today is going to remind us that although it is, it is possible presently or for a little while to ignore Jesus, to dismiss him, our passage today is going to remind us that ultimately you cannot ignore him forever. Ultimately you cannot dismiss Jesus forever because of who he is, because he is the Son of God, because he is the, the risen and exalted King of the universe and the final judge. One day we will all stand before him. And give an account to him. But because of who he is, if you will embrace him as your, as your Lord and Savior, if you will, will um, fasten your life to him in faith, then he will be 
that, that solid rock for you. He will be that cornerstone for you. He will be the, the one who gives you hope, who gives you life, who gives you direction, the one who, from whom you draw your strength and life from on a daily basis. And so I, my prayer today is that through the scriptures, God will help us once again to see the glory of Jesus Christ and, and God will convict us. You know, are we, are we um, forgetting Jesus? Are we ignoring Jesus? Have we dismissed who Jesus is? May God show you clearly today uh, again who he is. And so the title of the message today is The Only Way to God. And I have three headings today that will kind of take us through these three paragraphs in, in our text The first heading is simply authority from God. Authority from God. That's the issue that is being addressed in in verses 23 through 27. Because of what Jesus has done, because the fact that he's entered in um, in a symbolic way, showing that he is the promised Messiah, because he's, he's allowed the crowds, the Galilean crowds who were pilgriming, on this pilgrimage with him, to be shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! He's been, he's been uh, listening to and, and enjoying this praise, declaring that he's the Messiah. And because of what he did in the temple, that the religious elders are beside themselves. The religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the elders, the, the Pharisees, all of those who make up what is called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. They're the ones who are in charge, and they are fit to be tied at Jesus, at, at this scene that, he's, that, that has unfolded as he's come into Jerusalem. And so they confront him in verse 23. When he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So see, there's Jesus. He's back in the temple. He's, he's continuing to teach about the kingdom of God, about who he is. They confront him and say, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So see, they're, they're asking two questions, but they're, they're really overlapping questions. By what authority are you doing these things, coming in here like this and, and cleansing the temple like this and, and, and saying the things you're saying? And who gave you this authority? Basically, you meld it all together. They're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are? What gave you the right, or who gave you the right, to come in here and, and declaring that you are the Messiah? Who gave you the right to make those claims? Don't you know that we, we are the authority around here, they're saying. We run the show. And so they're trying to silence Jesus, right? Because he, not only has he done this, but he's continuing to teach. And you can just imagine the fervor, right? I mean, at, at first it was kind of like this, this fervor from the, from the pilgrims from Galilee. Well, they, I'm sure the religious leaders are thinking, man, this is going to spread now to the people of Jerusalem, right? This is going to spread to all the people who've gathered here for the Passover. We've got to silence Jesus right away. And so they confront him right there in public. Jesus, verse 24, answered them, well, I will also ask you a question, right? They've been lobbing these questions toward him. And then I also will uh, tell you, tell me the answer. Then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus turns the tables on them, right? Instead of answering their question, he says, well, I'm going to ask you a question first. You answer me, I'll answer you. And here's his question in verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? 
And you might say, wow, that came out of left field, right? You know, first of all, who's Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about John the Baptist, right? Um, and so when he says the baptism of John, that's, that's kind of a, just a, a summary way of referring to all of John's ministry, right? And it's been several chapters, right, since we've seen John's ministry, but that's how Matthew really began the, the story here um, back in chapter 3 was, remember, John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. John acknowledged that he was the, the forerunner that the Old Testament talked about, the forerunner preparing the way for the Messiah. And so he, he preached boldly, and, and people were repenting. They were, they were being baptized as a, as a demonstration of the repentance, and John was pointing forward to Jesus. So when Jesus asked the religious leaders, was John's ministry from heaven or from man, what he's saying is, heaven, you know, is a way of referring to God, right? It's a reverent way of referring to God. He's saying, was John, in his ministry, was John commissioned by God, right? Was his ministry from heaven? In other words, did John have the authority of God? Or was John just some wannabe, right? Was he just some loudmouth guy that, that, that drew a crowd? Was it from man? Was he a fake? And the reason Jesus is, is doing that is he's not dodging the question. They're asking him, who gave you this authority? He's asking about John's authority, and he's, he's putting them in a, in, a, in a pinch here, right? He's putting them in a corner because he knows that uh, John and Jesus's ministries are inseparably linked, because John had come and claimed to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And remember, he had explicitly pointed ahead to Jesus. He said, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so and John, uh, Jesus had accepted John's endorsement. Jesus had accepted that, that partnership, if you will, that, that linkage, if you will, Jesus had been, even been baptized by John as, as a way of identifying with sinners, as a way of kind of, and the baton was passed to, to Jesus, right? So Jesus and John are inseparably linked, and the point is they share the same source of authority. So if John's authority is from God, and he pointed toward Jesus as the Messiah, then Jesus is legitimate. Jesus' authority is from God. But if John's a fake, well then, yeah, Maybe Jesus is a fake too. That's, that's what he's getting at here. So how are the Jewish leaders going to respond to that, right? I mean, they, they, they certainly want to silence Jesus. They want to discredit Jesus. So are they going to cut it off at the source and discredit John? Well, you see in verse 25, the second part there, they're discussing it among themselves. And, and they're in a dilemma. They're like, if we say that it was from, that it was from heaven... If we say he had the authority of God, then Jesus is going to say to us, well, why didn't you believe him? John pointed forward and saying, I was the Messiah. And if you say he was from God, why aren't you accepting me as the Messiah? They know that's what Jesus is going to do. But if they just try to discredit John and say, well, he was from man, he was a fake, he... then now they're going to have the crowd mad at him because the crowd held John as a prophet. The crowd recognized that John was no... Uh, no imposter, that John was, had been called by God, he had been commissioned by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, they don't like either one of those options, right? And so they try to take some middle ground here. They plead ignorance in verse 27. We do not know. And so Jesus says, fine, well then I'm not going to 
answer your question either, right? Conversation's over. But even in that, don't you see, Jesus comes out victorious, of course, right? He's, he's showing that he does have authority from God. They were hoping to trap him, but instead they're the ones who got stuck. They were hoping to discredit him, but instead he has shown his mastery over them. And what I want you to see, because this is all building up to this, this ultimate rejection of Jesus, this ultimate confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus, I want you to see the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders here, right? Uh, when they say they don't know, that wasn't really true, was it? Right? It, by saying you don't know, that's kind of like, well, I don't have all the facts, or, or the facts aren't clear, but that wasn't the case. They could clearly see that John had been commissioned by God. And so if they were being intellectually honest and, well, and, and um, if their hearts were in the right place, they would say, well, John was commissioned by God. He, and, and he was pointing toward Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah. But see, that's what they wouldn't accept. And so their, their, their issue was not an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. Their hearts were hard. They didn't want to submit to Jesus. And by the way, you'll, you'll find there's, there, there's some people like that today, right? Some people don't know. They, they are truly ignorant in the sense they don't know the truth. But others, they see the truth around them. They see the evidence of creation. And what does Romans say? They suppress that truth because of their sin, because of their hard hearts. And, and so many... Uh, just don't want to bow before Jesus. But what Jesus is, what we see from this example here is clearly Jesus is the promised king who's come to save and rule. He's, he, he works with, he ministers with the authority of God. And, and the crowds, many of them who, had, especially from Galilee, they saw that, right? That, hey, this is why he's able to cast out demons. This is how he's able to heal the blind and the, and the lepers and, and, and the deaf, this is, this is how he's able to teach as someone like we've never heard teach before with the authority from God because he is the promised king. This is why it's right and good and true for him to ride in on this, this donkey fulfilling that prophecy saying, yes, I am the Messiah. This is why he has a right to do whatever he wants in the temple. Jesus is the king sent from God. He is the one who's come to deliver his people from sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again. Jesus is the one who had come to save and rule over God's people. And so the religious leaders needed to accept that. They needed to realize that, that Jesus is the promised one. They needed to realize that their heritage, their ethnicity, their, their religious background as Jews was not going to make them right with God, that only Jesus could make them right with God. They needed to trust in Jesus for their eternal salvation. They needed to bow before King Jesus and serve him and rejoice in his rule. And, and the same is true for us today. We need to recognize who Jesus is. We need to recognize that he is the eternal son of God. We need to recognize that having laid down his life... Uh, for his people, God has raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place, and that he is king over all. And that the Father has given all authority to him, that he is the only savior, he is the rightful judge and ruler. 
And so let us not be like the religious leaders. Let us not have hard hearts. Let us instead seek to honor Jesus and obey Jesus and trust in Jesus and rejoice in who he is. Rejoice that he's a good king and a powerful king who saves his people. So that's the first heading, authority from God. Our second one is entering the kingdom of God. Remember I said after this confrontation about authority, Jesus then gives two parables. We're still in the same setting. We're still at the temple. The, the, The religious leaders have come up and they're still talking to Jesus in front of the crowds, confronting him. And so now Jesus has turned the tables on them and now he's gonna speak directly to them, but obviously others are listening, right? And he gives them these two parables. And, and this first one, verses 28 through 32, you see it's about entering the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It's about salvation. It's about how is a person saved. And so Jesus says, what do you think? A man has two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Right, so the picture is kind of like just kind of like just an ordinary family, right? Not necessarily a, a rich guy, but just just a guy who has has a field, has a vineyard, has a couple of sons. He tells the first one, "Hey, go and work in the vineyard today." Well, how does that first son answer? "I will not." Verse twenty nine. But afterward, that son changes his mind and goes and works in the vineyard. Well, then verse 30, the the father goes to another son, a second son, says the same thing to him. Hey, go work in the vineyard. And that son says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go. But then doesn't go. (laughs) It never goes. So Jesus says, well, which of the two sons did the will of the father? Pretty straightforward. And and the, the religious leaders, the crowd as well. They got it. They said the first. Now here's here's this point, verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So like with any parable, we kind of got to get the who represents who, right? What's the symbolism here? Well, you can imagine who the father is, right? The father is God. Now, who do you think the Jewish leaders are like? Who are they in the, in the parable? They're the second son, right? They're the second son. Remember, what did the second son do? When the father says, go work in the vineyard, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go. But then they don't go. And so the Jewish leaders claimed to obey God. They claimed to be living in obedience to God's law, but they weren't. They weren't obeying God, right? Think about it. They weren't worshiping God from a pure heart. They weren't obeying the commandments of God from the heart, right? We've seen Jesus talk about that throughout Matthew. You've heard it said this, but I say to you, right? They were, yeah, they were, they had the outward conformity down pretty well, but they weren't really obeying God from the heart. And where this is culminating is (laughs) they weren't accepting God's king. So they weren't doing the will of the father. They were disobeying God, the father, as far as the parable goes, right? Because they were rejecting 
the king, the, the son whom he had sent to them. So the Jewish leaders are like the second son, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and other sinners, other, the other riffraff or whatever you want to say, they're like the first son. Yeah, initially they didn't follow God's law. Yeah, initially they were leading this life of sin and debauchery and, and so forth, right? But as we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry, it was, it was those on the outskirts of society. It was the tax collectors. It was the prostitutes. It was the, the sinners, as the Pharisees would say. It, were, it was they who were responding to Jesus. It was they who had who were repenting of their sins and embracing Jesus as king and savior. So, that, yeah, initially they weren't doing the Father's will, but now they were. Now they were obeying the Father. They had embraced the king that God had sent. Okay, so hopefully you get the symbolism there. And you can see Jesus is using this to, to it should be shocking to to the crowds it should be shocking to the religious leaders right like most parables do have this kind of shock value right well this is the shock value says hey you guys are not even in the kingdom of god he's saying that to the religious leaders the tax collectors the prostitutes they're entering the kingdom of god before you why because they have believed they have believed and it's interesting by the way if you notice he he keeps bringing it back to john right he's saying they've believed john's message they, they, and again, what was John's message? <laughs> Repent, because the king is coming, and Jesus is that king, right? So they believed John's message about Jesus. And so he's saying, they have entered the kingdom of God before you. So even in that, you had an opportunity to, to see what was happening and, and turn and believe. But that's what the, is really tragic about this, right? Is the religious leaders still wouldn't believe. They saw the tax collectors and prostitutes responding to the good news, and they still would not change their minds and repent. They still, they, they, they had an opportunity, right? And we see this in the Gospels. When, when they see Jesus eating with tax collectors, when they see, again, the, the riffraff of society uh, following Jesus and, and obeying him, what do they do? What do the religious leaders do? Do they say, Oh man, you know, maybe we were maybe we were wrong about Jesus. I mean, wow, look at look at the difference he's making in these people's lives. I mean, I mean that, you know, the, the, he healed that person and 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 that that woman used to be an adulterer and now she's she's following the Lord. I mean, her life has been totally transformed. We, maybe we need to rethink this about Jesus. I mean, I know he didn't come from our schools and I, I you know, I know he's from the wrong side of the tracks and all this and that, but but he might really be the Messiah. No, they didn't do that. No, instead, they, they just got mad at Jesus, right? And they just, they, you know, they got mad at those who were believing in Jesus. And they, can, they hardened their hearts even more and kept rejecting the truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even though they see Jesus powerfully doing what the Messiah was supposed to do, still, by and large, the religious leaders will not turn and repent. They will not believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so, yeah, these others are, are entering the kingdom of God, but the religious leaders are not. They're going to be left on the outside unless they also turn and repent. And so this parable reminds us of an important truth. As you, as you look at that paragraph there of this, of this parable, 28 through 32, 
Do you notice some words being repeated and sticking out to you? Well, look at the text. Believe, right? Believe. (laughs) Right? Especially at the end as Jesus is making his point. John, verse 32, John came in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And so this parable teaches us and reminds us of that important truth that one enters the kingdom of God. One, in other words, one is saved. How? Through faith in Jesus, by believing. And that's what, how the apostles preached, isn't it? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Romans 3.25 talks about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's, it's, it's a foundational truth. It's a very simple truth, but it's so important. It's essential. A person is not saved by their works. A person is not saved by going to church. A person is not saved by trying to be a good person. The Bible is clear. The only way that a person is saved, the only way a person can escape God's wrath and have eternal life, the only way a person can enter the kingdom of God is through faith in Jesus. And that involves repentance, right? Changing of, changing of the mind that involves a change of direction. It means that forsaking of sin. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've been completely selfish and just living for my own little kingdom. No, but now I, I, I realize that, that Jesus is, is the rightful king. And so I'm going to forsake my sin. I'm going to cry out to him for mercy for my sins. And I'm going to seek by, by his enabling to follow him, to obey him. That is how a person is saved. Through repentance and faith in Christ. Have you done that today? Have you done that today? Are you relying on Christ alone for your salvation? Or, or are you kind of like the, the religious leaders that you, you assume you're already in the kingdom of God? Why? Well, because I do all the things that on the outside that looks like a Christian does. I go to church, right? I, you know, I, I try to be a good citizen. No, we need to evaluate our hearts and say, am I actually doing the will of the Father? Have I actually trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins? And am I actually following Christ as Lord? It's not just something I tack on on the weekends, right? No, he is my Lord. Yes, I fail every day because I still battle my sin and I still am prone to selfishness, but I'm trying to follow him as Lord by his grace. So we've considered authority from God and entering the kingdom of God. Our third and final heading today is a new people of God. A new people of God. And this is where it continues on the theme that we saw last week, right? 
Jesus follows this up in verse 33, right? He's already told the one parable about the two sons. Now he's going to follow it up with another parable, this time about a landowner leasing property to tenant farmers to take care of the land and gather in the harvest for the owner. So now the picture is of a, of a richer guy, right? A big a guy that has more land, and he, and he hires uh, tenant farmers to take care of the land, right? So he can go away and take care of his other business or whatever, they're to, be, they're to be the stewards. They're to be the ones taking care of the land, making sure it produces the, the proper uh, harvest, and then he'll collect from that harvest. And, of course, you know, they would get their wages and all that. This was a familiar practice in that day, right? So people would have understood this, this picture very clearly. So here's the parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug, dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, so we're seeing the characters involved here. We've got the owner, we've got a vineyard, you know, if you, and then we've got tenants. Now, who do they represent? What do they represent? Well, God is the owner of the vineyard. He's the man who planted the vineyard and leaves it in charge of tenants. And, and again... I think, by and large, the the hearers would have gotten that because as soon as Jesus mentioned vineyard, most of them would have been thinking back to their scriptures, the Old Testament, we call it, right? Where Israel is portrayed as a vineyard. Matter of fact, I won't take the time now, but if you look in Isaiah 5, it uses a lot of the same terminology that God had had. Uh, planted this vineyard. He had cared for this vineyard. He had, he had, he had dug around it. He protected it. He had nourished it. He had, he had given it special care and attention. And that's talking about the covenant God made with Israel. And so God expected fruit to come from this vineyard, right? So Isaiah 5 talks about that. Psalm 80 is another passage. And Israel knew that, right? They knew that they were portrayed as a vineyard. Matter of fact, here Jesus is teaching in the temple. Well, on 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 the very temple itself, there, there was this big uh, carved-out grapevine with, with jewels in it because that was like the national symbol for Israel of being a vineyard. So their minds would have been going to that, but, but there's a slight nuance in this parable in the fact that the, in the parable here, the vineyard doesn't stand for Israel directly, But the vineyard stands for the blessings of being God's people. Okay? You need to understand that. The vineyard stands for the blessings of being God's people. The privilege of being God's people. Well, up up till now, that privilege has belonged to the nation of Israel. Right? And so the tenants are the nation of Israel. The Jews here. The Jews are the tenants to whom God has entrusted his vineyard. Because again, think back to, to, your, to your Old Testament, right? Out of all the nations in the world, God chose to make a covenant with Israel. And under the Old Covenant, Israel had amazing privileges, right? The privilege of being God's people, and they had God's law. And, and through that law, God had entered into this covenant with them, making them a blessed people, a set-apart people from all other nations. Matter of fact, in Romans 9, Paul spoke of these blessings, Romans 9, 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Israel had amazing privilege of being God's people, of, of having God's word, of, of knowing of God's covenants, of knowing that from their very physical line would come the promised king, the Messiah. 
Israel was blessed to be God's special people. To no other nation had God revealed himself and entered into a covenant like that. To no other nation had God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Israel had been given God's word so that they could know him and and, and know how to worship him and, and serve him. And they even had the privilege of God's presence dwelling among them in a special way. And so, yes, God had promised to to multiply Israel, to protect Israel, to prosper Israel, to bless Israel, as long as they stayed faithful to that covenant. And so they had amazing blessings from God. They had been entrusted with the care of this vineyard. They had been given stewardship of the blessings of being God's people. Why? In order to bring bring forth fruit. In order to bring forth a harvest of, of glory to God of showing that they're a set-apart people, of of showing in some way of displaying God's glory to the nations around them. It's an amazing privilege, but it carries a responsibility with it. Right at harvest time, God's expecting fruit. And so that's where the story gets picked up then in verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he, meaning the owner, sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Okay? Normal practice, but look what happens in verse 35. The tenants took his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and stoned another. That's not the way it's supposed to happen, right? They're supposed to hand over the fruit, hand over the harvest. Verse 36, again, he, the owner, sent other servants, more than the first this time. But they, the tenants, did the same thing to them, to these servants, Okay, so what is that representing? Well, God, again, God expected fruit from Israel, but they continued to disobey him, right? They would be faithful for a little while, but they would then disobey. They'd start worshiping idols. And so what did God do? He didn't just quit on them the very first failure. No, he sent prophets, right? You read in the Old Testament, that's what the prophets were doing. They were calling the people back to repentance. God graciously sent them prophets to speak his words to them, to to warn them, to call them to repent, to warn them of coming judgment, to help get them back on track so that they, they could gather in then the fruit of repentance and faithful worship. But as you read through the Old Testament, how were those prophets treated as they were sent to the nation of Israel? Were they treated well or treated very poorly? (laughs) Very poorly, right? Very poorly. They were despised by the people. They were persecuted by the leaders. I mean, we won't go through every prophet, but I mean, some of the big ones that that stand out, right? Elijah was driven into the wilderness. He was constantly harassed. We know, according to tradition, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was arrested and tossed into a muddy cistern to die. Zechariah was stoned to death by the altar in the temple, right next to the altar in the temple. And of course, most recently, the, the last of the prophets, the one who kind of was, again, that passing the baton from the old covenant into the one who would bring in the new covenant, John the Baptist, how was he treated? Well, he was beheaded, right? But yes, some people believed, but he was by and large rejected by the leadership and was killed. So the people of Israel did not listen to the prophet's call to repent. And you see Jesus himself um, lamenting about this. I don't, Matthew hasn't brought it out quite as much as some of the other gospel writers do, but in Luke 11, 
Jesus says, man, from Abel to Zechariah, from the first prophet, if you want to call Abel that, to the last one in the Old Testament, the people of God have been killing God's servants who were sent to them. Matter of fact, in Luke's account of Jesus entering Jerusalem, right, on, on, right before or on Palm Sunday, he, he weeps over Jerusalem, remember? He weeps, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So, I mean, this Jesus' parable describes the nation of Israel to a T. They had been given stewardship of God's vineyard, but they were not producing its fruits. And as the servants, as the prophets came to them, they rejected them, they, they persecuted them, they even killed many of them. But look at how the parable ends. Verse 37, rather than wiping them out, God continues to show grace. Verse 37, finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. (laughs) And I mean, we should just see that and be reminded the patience of God, the mercy of God. Even after Israel had spurned and killed so many prophets, God gave them one last chance to repent. He says, I'm going to send my precious son, whom I love, to them. I'll, and I'll send my spirit down on my sons, and, 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 and he'll be fulfilling all these, all these scriptures about being the, the promised one, about being the Messiah, about being the king who's come. Surely they'll listen to him. He's going to speak with authority. He's going to powerfully bring in the kingdom of God. He's going to be casting out demons, healing the sick, even raising the dead. He'll teach with authority. He'll show the compassion and love of God himself. Surely they'll listen to him. Surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll believe that he is the promised Messiah and submit to him. Verse 38. And again, remember where this is taking place. This is Jesus himself saying this to the religious leaders, primarily. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the tenants did not respect the son. They recognized he was the son. They acknowledged that he's the rightful heir. But they didn't submit to him. Rather they plotted against him and said let's kill him. And that's exactly what we see happen in scriptures, isn't it? Jesus, the eternal son of God, the promised seed of Abraham, the promised son of David, he came in gentleness, in love, in glory, and in truth. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Israel, by and large, would not submit to Jesus as king. They would not follow him as Lord. They would not trust in him as savior. They rejected him and killed him. And again, it's kind of chilling when you think about this setting. Jesus is saying this to them about himself and about them he's saying what's going to happen in just a few days what's going to take place but jesus has been you know and the parable gets people in into the story right so the, the religious leaders, they've been tracking with Jesus. Just like they answered the one about the sons, they've been tracking with Jesus as far as the, of the picture about this owner and the parable, or the tenants in the vineyard. And 
And so verse 40, Jesus asked them, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, when, when finally the owner himself visits the tenants after they've killed the servants, after they've killed the son, what will he do? What will the owner do to those tenants? He's, at, he's putting the ball in their court. He's asking them, how do you think this story ends? Look at what they say in verse 41. Again, I mean, this, it's, it's ironic, it's sad. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So it's like the religious leaders get it, right? I mean, they get the story in the sense of, well, yeah, man, that's what I'd do if I was the owner, right? You know, I, man, I would kick those tenants out. I would, I would punish them. They deserve to die. This reminded me so much of in the Old Testament when the prophet Nathan, right, was, was confronting King David, you know, after David's sin with Bathsheba and then Bathsheba's husband and, and you know, tells the story about the, the, the man who uh, steals the neighbor's little ewe lamb and kills it, right? Remember how David got angry? That man deserves to die. That's kind of what's happening here. Yeah, those tenants deserve to die. They deserve, uh, and that owner should give the vineyard to someone else. And then it's like Jesus says, like Nathan, you are the man. You are the tenants. That's what's going to happen. Verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures? Ooh, another jab, right? <laughs> These scholars. The stone that the, quoting Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, Jesus drives it home. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Jesus is applying it to their situation, to what, how they've been behaving, how they've been responding to him. The therefore in verse 43 actually kind of serves a double duty here. For one, he is driving it home to the religious leaders. Yeah, the verdict you just said, that's what's going to happen to you. You are going to be removed. You're, going to be, you're no longer going to have the, the, the privilege and care of the vineyard. The owner himself is going to inflict judgment on you, the wicked tenants. He's going to destroy you and give the, vine, the vineyard to, to someone else. And that's exactly what would happen. Right? In AD 70, um, God would judge the nation of Israel. The temple would be destroyed. The, uh, Jerusalem would be completely conquered and wiped out. Wiped out. They would be scattered and, and killed. And when he says in verse 43, it's going to be taken from you and given to a people. Right? The kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The word people there is ethnos. And so what, what we know from that is he's not just saying, hey, you know what, it's time for a, some new Jewish leaders here. You know, like you guys need to step down and maybe some new guys need to come up and let's kind of keep with our system. No, he's, it's a brand new thing. It's a new nation. It's a new people group. A new people of God. It's a people who are going to arise out of Jesus' ministry. It's a people who are going to be characterized by faith in him. And this new people is going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. 
This new people is not going to be determined by their ethnicity. No, the new people is going to be determined by faith in Christ. The new people is going to be the church. It's going to be believers. And this new people will produce by God's grace and by his life, Christ's life being lived through them, they'll produce the fruits of faith, of embracing Jesus as Messiah, of following him, of obeying him, of bringing glory to him. And so he's telling the Jews, the privilege of being God's people is being taken away from you. The blessings of being in a covenant relationship with God is going to come to an end for you, and I'm creating a new covenant. And it'll be a new people made up of Jews and Gentiles, those who have embraced me as Lord and Savior through faith. And so all of that, of course, then is contingent on his quote there of Psalm 118, and that's kind of the other duty of the therefore. That Psalm 118, do you see that quote there? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So you, you, you get the picture. It's, it's a stone that, that the builders, the original builders, said, oh, this stone, this stone's worthless, right? This stone's not what we need. They reject it. They cast it aside. But yet God says, no, that very stone that you've cast aside, that's what I'm going to make my cornerstone. That's where I'm going to build my temple. That's where I'm going to build my people of God. And of course, that's applying to Jesus, right? I mean, we, we saw that in the scripture reading today, in the call to worship today, the apostles are all saying, that is Jesus, he was examined and rejected by the religious leaders. They didn't believe he was the Messiah, but yet he is. And so even though their rejection is going to mean they kill him, God's going to work through that rejection to actually exalt him. And that's again, shows the wisdom and the power of God, the sovereignty of God. Through their rejection, that was all part of God's plan because that through their rejection, that's how Jesus was going to save his people. That's how Jesus was going to inaugurate the new covenant. That's how Jesus was going to start the construction of this new man, this new people, this new humanity, as Ephesians 2 says. That's how he's going to start that construction of the, the spiritual temple of which we are living stones. So it's a beautiful, beautiful picture it's a, it's a powerful picture. It's, a, it's showing God's, again, God's sovereignty. It's showing um, what, what God is doing through Jesus. It's showing how, yes, they're going to reject Jesus, but Jesus is going to be vindicated through the resurrection. When God on that third day raise, raises him from the dead, it's going to vindicate Jesus and show that he is who he claimed to be, that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of all who believe in him. And that he is the cornerstone on which God is building his new people. Verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And Matthew wraps up the account. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so, again, they're not, they're not repenting. They're not, they're not believing. They're not embracing Jesus. They're, they're, they're dug in in their hard-heartedness and rebellion. And, and, 
and this is going to reach a culmination. They just are looking for a chance to, to arrest him quietly, to deal with him quietly, and that's what they'll do later in the week. But notice verse 44. I want to close by highlighting that. He's still talking about the cornerstone, right? The stone. The stone that you guys rejected became the cornerstone. Not only is it through the one through whom people are saved, through whom this new people are built, but it serves another purpose too. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And this brings me full circle back to what I said at the beginning. Jesus Christ is the risen Savior and exalted King and Judge. So one way or another, we will all have to deal with Jesus. Either you build your life upon him now through faith, or you trip over him and are broken to pieces. Either either he's your saving cornerstone to whom you're anchored in faith, or he's going to be a stone that that crushes you at the final judgment. Because he is the exalted Lord, we will all stand before him. And only those who have embraced him and followed him through faith will be welcomed into his kingdom. And so, may, may we not ignore Jesus. May we be reminded of who Jesus is today. That he speaks, that he's been sent from God, that he's, he's our, the only way to God, that through him God is building a new people of God that we have the privilege of, of, of being through faith and that he has the authority from God. Not only in the fact that he was originally sent as the Messiah, but now he, what he'll, the way he'll end the, the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven on earth and, and earth has been given to me. He has all authority from God. And so we'll stand before him. And so may God enable you this morning, if you haven't already, to turn to him in repentance and faith And may God help you to just anchor your life on Christ. Put all your hope of your eternal salvation on him and and look to him and to his spirit as, as the one that gives you direction in life. May you seek his kingdom, not following the ways of this world, but seeking to have your minds renewed and following the risen Christ. And though we don't love, don't see him now, we love him and believe in him because of who he is. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son. May you continue to exalt his name among us now. Please give faith, Lord, to those that don't have it. And for those of us whom you've graciously saved, please um, remind us of who Jesus is and, and encourage us that we are, we have the privilege of being your people and, and encourage us the fact that he is the cornerstone Though he was rejected by men and he continues to be rejected today, that does not change who he is. That he is the, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you but through him. That he is king and lord over all. And may you continue to drive these truths home to us now, even as we have the joy of taking the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name.